Hey, Three Crosses family, welcome back to the Going Deeper podcast. We are cranking up the speed in our First Peter content. We're going to be in chapter 2, verses 13 through 25 today. And so with that, let's go deeper. We're sitting here again with Pastor Danny going over First Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 25. So Pastor Danny, welcome back to the hot seat. Thanks for having me back. We got a lot of content to dive into this week, so I just want to jump right into it. Uh, we're going to break down the passage, uh, verses 13 to 25, into a couple sections, starting with verses 13 through 17. So let me read that for our listeners here. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone, love the family of believers, fear God, honor the emperor." So over the next couple of weeks, uh, we're going to focus on this word submit here. And I'm struck by the parallel uh, with Paul's literature that kind of transitions right into submission or uh, acknowledging the authorities of our time, the government, uh, the emperor as a supreme authority, the governors who are sent by him. And so I'm wondering if we could begin by unpacking why do we believe that Peter here wants to unpack what it means to be a good citizen under the reign of a Roman empire. Yeah, the the different New Testament writers often talk about these same concepts and sometimes in the same order, right? Talking about uh, slavery, talking about household codes, husbands and wives, children and parents. It's interesting to look at, at Peter's usage of this because there's some things missing, right? We don't really have the children and parents thing here. There's not a lot of language given to husbands here. There's nothing talking about people who have household servants under their authority or care. Um, really, this kind of fits with the brand that Peter brings the whole book, which he is primarily, if not exclusively, speaking to folks who find themselves in positions of suffering under authority figures in the world. And so he's speaking to Christians who find themselves under an unjust authority in the Roman government. He's talking to household servants who find themselves under the authority of maybe a Christian, maybe a non-believing master in that home or in that context. He's talking to wives who find themselves in Peter's context. Many of them have husbands who aren't Christian people. And so really one thing that's unique about Peter that we're trying to draw out in our series and in our times together is that Peter is specifically talking to people who find themselves under and either unjust or oppressive even authority figure and what attitude to bring to the table as someone who's in that unjust setup. And so submit becomes the word, that keyword, that buzzword that Peter launches with for folks who find themselves in these environments and structures. We talked a couple weeks ago about this tension, uh, wrestling with this, these different tensions that the Christian faith brings us when we're living in a foreign place. And one of them comes out here, uh, submit yourselves to the emperor as supreme authority or to governors. But then in verse 16, it talks about living as free people. But then it continues by saying, live as God's slaves. And so there's a tension of you're submitting yourself to something, but you're also free, but you're also God's slaves. And so there's kind of this back and forth um, 
bouncing around of these ideas. And so what I'm interested in is more of a practical question in terms of how to wrestle with these tensions uh, just in a modern context, but also probably for Peter's context. So to what extent do we then submit ourselves to the government? I know this is a hot topic. There's a lot of band-aids here. Um, we could talk about, you know, the COVID restrictions that we faced over the past couple of years. Um, we could even point to places in the Bible where, you know, the Hebrew midwives, they uh, subverted the government because they were being commanded to do a wrong thing. Or Daniel is another great example. Um, we could look at people in our own history, Martin Luther King, you know, uh, going and, you know, peacefully protesting in these different ways. And so I'm wondering if you could help us unpack this tension a little bit of submitting to the governing authorities, but also living as God's people so that we can, in verse 17, show proper respect to everyone, love the family of believers, fear God, and honor the emperor. I love the, the word that you started with in the question, that idea of, of tensions, because Tensions are all over these passages, and even like in Paul's literature that, that we talked to, that's a different focus. He brings up the tensions too, right? Paul starts with that idea in Ephesians 5 of submitting one to another, and then fleshes out what submitting to each other means in places where you find yourself in a culture where there might be a hierarchical structure, right? Um, so here, laden with tensions as well, this idea of, okay, I'm a Christian, and so I am someone who it's my job to have a submissive posture. That is a, a great posture to have. At the same time, uh, there are places where I might be in an unjust setup. What do I do with that? Well, okay, I've got a submissive posture, but sometimes it's like you talk about in the scriptures. We see people who it's their commission to rise up and change, right? And part of what the church is called to do in, I think, of Isaiah talking about the type of fast that God desires. He says, I, I want a fast that loosens the bonds of slavery, that frees the captives, that brings justice into the world. And so even as people with a submissive spirit, submitting primarily, submitting primarily to God, uh, we also have to wrestle with, okay, but sometimes God has a commission for us to rise up, right? And so in terms of what to do in terms of government, he talks about that a little bit, that, okay, government's a little bit interesting because we've got like this marriage institution, which is ordained by God. We've got slavery as an institution, which is against the plan of God. And now we have government, which is kind of this hybrid, which obviously government is something that we will be under the government of Jesus forever and ever and ever, right? That's a godly thing. Peter says in this passage reminds us that God even uses the government of our world as part of his agency to bring justice into the world. Mm -hmm. And yet, what do you do when you're in a spot where your government is not bringing justice? Or what do you do when you're being marginalized, right? And so a lot of the tensions that we wrestle with are things that, okay, it's not about me, it's about others is a big tension, right? So it's okay, I can bear up under unjust government unless they're calling me to sin, right? Then I can't, I can't, I'm going to choose God over government. But then what do you do when the government's bringing injustice and you feel like, okay, it's my job as a believer to rise up against this, right? We think of, you named a few examples. I think of a Dietrich Bonhoeffer in mm -hmm. Germany saying, you know what? I, I don't think it's time to submit to Hitler. I think it's time to go and assassinate this terrorist, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so that's a Christian response to being under unjust authority is not merely submitting to this fascist regime, uh, but rising up underneath it. Uh, I think in, in our government, that's that's where it's a different kind of tension, right? Because we we don't live in a government like in Peter's day, where people were absolutely powerless. We live in a, a governmental setup here in our country for those of us who are American people who uh, we've been invited into the political process. And so part of it is like, it's not a lack of submission to use your voice. It's not a lack of submission to vote. It's actually doing what the government has asked you to do. And so mm. 
all of these different tensions. What is the government set up? What am I called to do? Am I okay just submitting even though it's uncomfortable? What if they're calling me to sin? What if it's an area of injustice? All of these tensions are things that we wrestle with. And I think one of the things that Peter is doing is helping us to, to figure out where we live in that tension. That I love that you mentioned the idea we are slaves to God. The word doulos is the Greek word for slave. Peter doesn't use that in terms of the household servants and the household codes. He uses diakonos, like a more like a waiter, a servant there. And some commentators believe that it's because Peter wants to remind us that even if you are in an unjust slavery relationship, the only thing that we are, the only entity that we are in, truly enslaved to is God himself, right? And so this idea that God is my only master, even if I have in that context an earthly master. So really kind of putting these priorities in place and the tensions to wrestle with. And I think that's for all of us, wherever we are in the world, we've got to wrestle with what is this about? Is this about my faith? Is it about my Lord? Is it about justice? What is it truly about? And Peter does a good job on the other side of that saying, hey, be careful. Like, don't suffer selfishly. Don't suffer as a jerk. Don't suffer in these ways where it's you're pretending it's all about Jesus, but it's really because you want to do what you want to do, right? You've got to truly in your heart come to a place where you are being led by the Spirit of God to either rise up or submit or something in between um, based on all of these tensions that we see in the text and throughout the scriptures and in our world. I think this is why your Venn diagram illustration was so powerful uh, a couple weeks back. Uh, I see it in verse 17 here too, showing proper respect or honor to everyone, but loving the family of believers in particular, fearing God in particular, and then honoring the emperor. And so there's there's tension that's really there. And thank you for bringing that out. Um, let's move on to something you referenced because the next couple verses in 18 through 20 talk about slaves or servants. So it says in the NIV, slaves in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters. There's that word submit again, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh for it is commendable. That's the word uh, in the Greek charis or grace. If someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are a conscience of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. And so obviously right off the top of the bat, there's a lot of skepticism. Um, you know, people have been reading passages like these and immediately flipping their Bible clothes and saying, not for me. And so I want to bring it out into the open, going deeper a little bit. What do we do with this topic of slavery in the Bible? You know, it seems like it's saying submit to your masters. It's commendable to take uh, punishment that are, that can be harsh. And so it seems like on the surface level that it's just passages that we can't reconcile with what we know about slavery. And so what do we do with this uh, passage in First Peter? One of the works that I referenced on Sunday in the message about this is a, a great resource for anyone who wants to kind of dive into this very concept of how do we wrestle with these passages that feel irreconcilable to us in our culture, uh, which is Issa Macaulay's book, Reading While Black. The One of the last chapters is talking about uh, an African-American perspective on the slavery passages in the scripture. And he does a, a great job opening eyes to just seeing some of the places where we've done wrong and even done violence to a text like this, where in our, our country, a lot of times, this passage and passages like these have been used inappropriately, right? You slave owners in American slavery using passages to justify the institution of slavery, which Macaulay draws out. And we can plainly see 
is not what these passages are for. These passages are actually revolutionary in their day mm. and even today uh, because these passages are actually directed towards the folks who find themselves in unjust servitude, mm. where there's a lot of Greek philosophers, uh, Roman writers who talk about the household codes with these same categories, family and uh, servitude and government. And yet the thing that's different about the scriptures is the scriptures are the only writings in that era that would actually direct the writings towards the enslaved people, right? So in that world, slaves were viewed as people without the ability to, to make decisions for themselves with zero authority. And in the scriptures, God says, no, 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 no. You are equal to your masters, even if you find yourself in an unjust institution like slavery. And so the Bible speaks revolutionarily to women, to slaves, to these people who in that culture were completely voiceless and marginalized. And so the scriptures actually subvert the narrative of the day. And I think one thing that we need to remember as we look at the corpus of scripture is when we look at something like marriage, which is an institution designed by God to bring him glory, or even government, that's an institution that God can use to bring himself glory. Slavery throughout the scriptures is never seen as something designed by God. Mm-hmm. But the whole motif in the Old Testament, New Testament is freedom from bondage. We think of the Exodus where God helps his people escape from slavery. We think of the slavery codes in the law where people find themselves enslaved, whether it's due to a debt or it's due to becoming a prisoner or of war, these common things, people would become enslaved. In the in the Hebrew culture, it was the only culture in the world that written into their code was, you cannot keep someone in servitude for more than, I think it was six years or seven years, a certain amount of time, because human beings are not meant to be enslaved one to another. Throughout the scriptures, slavery is seen as an evil thing that God provides escape from as a as a symbol of salvation and also provides in his own governance and as he governs his people as a very temporary thing that people experience, unfortunately, and then are released from. And so it's a very different view of slavery than we normally have in our minds because we bring this context of, of the tragedy and travesty of American slavery, of kidnapping people from their native lands and forcing them into servitude for life, which is an abominable institution, even worse than anything we've seen in the scriptures, but so let's not forget that when we look at the scriptures, we're looking at a writing written to people who are not normally written to, who are in a context that the world believes is okay, but the scriptures say needs to be abolished. And so now the tension emerges, what do you do if you're in this place where you're in an unjust institution at its core, you're a believer, and you know that you are equal with any other person on this planet, including the person who claims to be your owner or master in that context, and yet you got to figure out what to do, right? How do you live? How do you survive in this place when you put yourself in the shoes of someone in that camp? And so what I love that Peter does is he gets in the shoes and into the hearts and ears and brings dignity to groups of people in that culture who had none, reminds them that they are co-heirs like in marriage with men and women, reminds them that they are equals and brothers like we see in the slavery passages, and then says, okay, but here you are. You're in this unjust institution that there seems to be no release from. What do you do? What perspective do you arm yourself with? And he gives them some tensions in that context to wrestle with. And hopefully that wrestling match with with that slavery topic can spark some more good conversations. I know we're happy to talk with people about it um, here at the church. I think I want to take a step back for a second because I think there's something intentionally going on. Uh, We see this type of literature in uh, other letters in the New Testament as well called household codes. And I think this is kind of where we're getting at is like, 
he's going to address slaves or servants, and then he's going to start addressing women. And then uh, in other places, in especially in Pauline literature, there's like this section that sparks some different controversies. Um, uh, I think this is where um, commentaries can really help because it, it helps getting uh, somebody into the conversation that has looked intently and and thoroughly at the original context and you know for us Karen Jobes has been a really uh, inspirational figure in terms of this book she has a quote that says while some modern interpreters consider the new testament household codes to be hopelessly chauvinistic they fail to read the codes against their contemporary literature which shows that the new testament writers actually subverted, like you said, cultural expectations by elevating the slave and the wife with unparalleled dignity. And so I want to, again, take that step back and ask you, Pastor Danny, how should we read well these household code passages all throughout the scriptures? I think the reading well of these passages depends on two terms that we've used already in this podcast. Number one is submission as a spirit, as a discipline, and number two would be tension, right? And so I think the biggest thing when we think about Christian, the Christian world today, whether it's Christian Christianity in America and their relationship to the government or this whole idea of uh, submission being a hot-button word, I really think that if we can find a safe place with the Lord to say, you know what? Teach me how to have a submissive posture as I enter into this conversation. I think that's the primary key. I think that's why every time these authors write about it, that's the word they start with. And they make it a categorical imperative that whether you are the husband or the wife or the slave or the master, whatever it is in that context, your job is to submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human institution, right? And so uh, I think the first thing we need to do is be willing to adopt a posture of submission, which for us is the heart of the gospel. We see uh, Jesus in the way that he lived, submitting to the Father, submitting to God's will, even bearing up under unjust suffering because of his posture of submission, as he had a resolve to follow the Spirit of the Lord wherever the Lord led him. So submission becomes that first key. That's the heart posture to begin with. And from that place of, okay, I'm going to voluntarily place myself under the authority of God and even under the authority of government or my husband or wife or whatever it is, this other person, I'm going to willingly put myself beneath another person, even though I know we're equals. Then from there, we start wrestling with these tensions of, I think without a submissive spirit, it's very difficult to wrestle with the tension of what is my place in relationship to government because everything in us wants to rise up inappropriately. But if we start submitting to God, say, God, I'm open to anything. Okay, let's talk about these tensions. This is the injustice I see. This is where I feel marginalized. This is where I feel like it's my responsibility. We can wrestle even in community with the tensions that the scripture presents from a posture of a submissive spirit. So I'd say submission, which is a a heart attitude that we apply to others and to God. And then second, be willing to openly and honestly wrestle with these tensions through a lens of good theology, but also looking out in the world and wanting to serve God and serve others well. You mentioned the example of Christ, which is exactly where Peter's uh, thinking goes through here in this letter. Verses 21 to 25, I'll read it real quick. To this, you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example. That word example there is hypogrammon. And in the commentaries, it suggested that it was something that kids use to learn their alphabet. And so it was saying like, this isn't just an example. This is the paradigm to think through. Like Christ suffering as the servant is the paradigm. 
that you should follow in his steps. And then it says, he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. Quote, by his wounds, you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And so this passage is fascinating because uh, we have different quotations from the Old Testament, which you're going to find in Isaiah 53, a really important passage. And Peter takes some of these quotes and intermingles them with the narrative of Jesus. And we're actually indebted to Peter's um, grafting in of these two images here um, as looking at Isaiah 53, the suffering servant passage in a Christological lens, looking at it through the lens of Jesus Christ. And so I think this calls us back into the Old Testament again to think about what is happening exactly in Isaiah 53 that makes this image so significant that it's uh, an encouragement to these slaves or servants that are suffering unjustly sometimes um, in these contexts. I love the way you drew our attention to that Greek word hypogrammon because that idea of Jesus being almost like the pattern that we are tracing, right? You picture this kid learning their alphabet. They put their finger on this pattern and they're tracing the alpha, right? The, the, I forgot my Greek alphabet here, right? Alpha, beta, beta gamma, beta, delta, beta. right? Yeah. So they're tracing these letters with their finger over the inscription their parents or their tutor has made for them. And really that, that is what Peter is doing for us at a macro level, right? Yeah. In an Isaiah 53 connection saying, let's not forget that Jesus, the one who we follow was the suffering servant. Right? He is the one who submitted himself to God's plan, submitted himself even to us. Those of us who serve him, he submitted himself to us as to serve us and die for us, but also even submitted himself to the unjust people who were bringing him towards his crucifixion. And we as Christians know that the crucifixion of Jesus was the most unjust event in the history of planet Earth. Mm. And at the same time, like Isaiah 53, 10 says, it was God's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. So Jesus, by submitting to the unjust authority of the world, was actually a, submitting above that to the authority of God who was walking him down this unjust path that God was going to use to redeem all of planet Earth. Hmm. And so on one hand, with anything in the scriptures, as we're trying to wrestle through tensions, let's start with the gospel and say, okay, the death and resurrection of Jesus, the gospel message, is always our pattern. And so how do we... How do I act most Christ-like in this thing I'm called to do? So that's, Jesus is always the pattern. I think that's why Isaiah brings, or uh, Peter brings up Isaiah 53. But at the same time, Peter also at a micro level brings up that hypogrammon concept of making Jesus the pattern, right? And Paul does this too. When you read the household codes, you think about husbands and wives in Paul, and he kind of puts our finger back in that pattern of like, okay, wives, submit to your husbands as the church submits to Christ. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church, right? He almost puts our finger in the gospel message and says, okay, you're trying to figure out what it means to be a Christian husband. Now let's look at this relationship between Christ and the church. You put your finger on Jesus, you put your finger on the church, right? And trace this out and find a pattern for your tension behavior 
find that pattern in Jesus and his relationship with his bride, the church, right? So how does my situation relate at a higher level to the theology that I believe about Jesus and his relationship with the church in that example? And then how do I pattern my life after that? And so on one hand, I think with any of these tensions, we pattern ourselves against the gospel. And then secondarily, we pattern ourselves against whatever we can find in the identity of Jesus or his relationship with us and say, I just want to kind of like WWJD, right? I just want to live and do what Jesus would do if he was in this context. How did he teach me to live in the way that he lived? And I love how Peter, we haven't talked about yet that one of the things that Peter draws out is when you are in these unjust relationships, you are submitting to God, not the person who thinks you're submitting to them. Hmm. And so, right, even that idea of, hey, you're a servant in this household code. But really, if you're a slave, you're a slave to God. You're not a slave to that person. That person, no human being owns you. No human being has you as their uh, property or employee in this unjust context. You report only to God alone. And now from that place of dignity and freedom, right, he says, live as free men, even in the context of this unjust institution called slavery, right? So but don't use your freedom as a cover-up for evil mm-hmm. to do whatever you want. Live as servants of God, right? Find the pattern in the gospel and find a way to apply that to your context, even though you know deep in your heart, I am not truly um, in this unjust relationship the way that society thinks that I am or the way that even this person who lives with me or who I am in their household thinks that I am. I I report to God alone, and now I'm going to go report to you and kind of picture Jesus as I relate to you in this way and serve you and serve God in that way. I think the inclusio or the brackets around sort of the main driving texts of the scriptures here are following in his footsteps and you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And so I think there's really a lot of comfort in the fact that, hey, we are tracing almost like an alpha, a beta, uh, the alphabet of, you know, the Greek time. We're tracing it and following Jesus as he's shepherding over our souls. And so I'm really encouraged by that. I think this leads to the final question about what this looks like in our context, because we were talking earlier and the context of Peter and and his audience here might not had might not have had the same amount of power or influence in their um, political cultural system as we Americans do. And it's truly a blessing to have that. And so the question that I want to ask is, what do we do with that? Because I I think there's a lot of quotes in these commentaries that we've been talking about. And one of them here is, you know, the call to follow the crucified Messiah was in the long run much more effective in changing the unjust political, economic and familiar familial structures than direct exhortations to revolutionize them would have ever been. For an allegiance to the crucified Messiah, indeed worship of a crucified God, is an eminently political act that subverts a politics of dominion at its very core. And so I'm wondering, maybe there's some people out there today that look at the injustice of our culture, of our world, and there's this growing passion for them to participate. And, And so... I'm wondering what exactly should we do with that? Should we put our heads in the sand and and continue um, to just worry about our own lives and just really try to focus on our faith? Or do we let that overflow into the political realm or these different realms that, you know, might get a little touchy? Yeah, I think all of that, and we take those two words of submission and tension and bring those to that equation. Okay, you know what? What if I drop my agenda 
and just say, I, I want to, though, I want to submit to God's agenda. What would God have me to do in this place? Right. And then we see things in our world that make our blood boil or that make us feel like somebody's got to do something about this. This is wrong. And then I think right from that posture of submission, okay, God, what would you have me to do? I'm going to trust you. We got to start wrestling with those tensions. And I think there's a chance that there's a right answer in some of these things. Like you got to stand up, you got to go and do something to stand up and give a voice to the voiceless, to give life to the like folks whose lives are being taken for them, like these types of things. And there's also a time where God says, you know what? I, I just need you to be quiet and pray. Right. And so, and that's, different in every case. And that also could be different for every person, right? I think of some of the things we talked about that first week in our Venn diagram, where it's like, okay, society doesn't match up with what Christians believe. And there's sometimes where our job is just to quietly keep our head down and live peaceful lives. Mm -hmm. And by doing that, we silence the voice of those who are doing wrong and speaking wrong because we just quietly say, sure, yeah, yeah, I'm just going to live here and I'm going to live like I'm a stranger here. This isn't my land. I'm just on a temporary visa here and someday I'll be in the kingdom. I'm just going to keep my head down and this is a weird place I live, right? But then there's other times where God might stir up an individual or bring up a topic where the church would say, no, somebody's got to stand up against this, right? And so all these tensions we've been talking about come into play at that point, right? It's what would Jesus do in this case, right? What did, how did Jesus relate to the political authorities of his day? What types of things did he call out? What types of things did he just endure? When did he endure them? Look at the whole Old Testament corpus of what, what do we see that God calls his people to fight for, bring justice against? What does justice look like? And then even, again, brings it back to an individual and a community level. Hey, what does my community feel like is an appropriate response based on our submission to Jesus with this ill that we see in this world, right? And that can mean a number of things, right? That can mean uh, being in a marriage like we see in First Peter, and we'll talk about next week, where you're married to someone who doesn't believe the gospel, and submission means, okay, even though I'd probably be happier with a Christian man or a Christian woman, this is the person God's brought me with, and I'm just going to ask the question, how would God have me to serve this person who doesn't even believe in Jesus the way I do, right? Or there could be a place where it's, you know, like Paul talks about, sometimes the non-believer leaves you because of uh, the difference in faith or whatever reason. It's like, okay, you know what? I'm free from this person. Now what am I going to do, right? Um, so sometimes it's an individualistic household thing. Sometimes it's a societal thing that we're wrestling with. But really, all we can do is have a posture of submission before the Lord, know the theology of the scriptures in terms of justice and action and God's will for the world, and then wrestle in community and in our own hearts with the spirit. God, how would you call me to respond? And I think of times in our nation's history, I think of the civil rights movement where the church, the African-American church primarily rose up to bring justice into the world. Mm -hmm. And yet many church groups, you mentioned Martin Luther King, had different responses to how to approach this, right? There were church groups that would come and say, hey, it's our job to pray. There were churches who were like, hey, it's our job to suffer well. There were churches saying it's our job to rise up. There were mm. churches who said, we're gonna, we're gonna march, we're gonna protest, we're gonna peacefully protest, we're gonna and really it's these different communities wrestling with this context in our world and saying, what is it for us to do in this case? And I do think sometimes there's no right or wrong answer. Mm -hmm more there's a myriad of ways that God would have his people to respond. And maybe the world will change when some Christians submit, some Christians rise up, some Christians vote, some, right? Everyone does the part that God has called them to play. We work together in the midst of this whole thing. So I would warn the church to not think, oh, well, we just live in the world. We should just take it as it is, right? There is a huge justice stream in the scriptures where that's the part of the reason the church exists is to bring light, to be the salt, to preserve the society that it lives in from decay. But 
those are all like tense situations and you add the overlay of most of the time we just want what we want we're not really mm-hmm. thinking of justice we're not really thinking of others we're thinking of making this a better place for myself right. uh and so part of it is like get that out the door first and say it's not about me it's about others it's about the lord it's about his glory it's about the kingdom god how would you have me to play a part in this world and even in a society where things are happening that are are not okay reminds me of the end of first peter 2 verse 12 uh, they see your good deeds so that they may glorify God on the day he visits us. And I think that's the driving factor of just obeying God. And, and like you said, wrestling with those tensions and uh, finding community to do that in. And if you are out there not in community, I'd encourage you to just join us on a Sunday and uh, come and meet the people that are wrestling with these exact same things of what to do in this world. And so, Pastor Danny, thank you for uh, being here. And uh We'll see you next time. See you then.